What's good? Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Dantil W. Moniz, author of the short story collection, Milk, Blood, Heat. Dantil Moniz is the recipient of the Alice Hoffman Prize for Fiction, the Cecilia Joyce Johnson Emerging Writer Award by the Key West Literary Seminar, and a Tin House Scholarship. Her fiction has appeared in the Paris Review, Tin House, Plowshares, American Short Fiction, Yale Review, One Story, McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, and elsewhere. Milk Blood Heat is her first book, and she lives in Northeast Florida. For my Duval folks, she lives in Jacksonville, at least for now. And she went to DA. Shout out to the home team. So in this conversation, Dantil and I discuss what it means to embody the full spectrum of humanity, no matter your race. The things we forget about parents and children, creating tension in relational fiction, and what it takes to make a life of language. And on that part, y'all, she goes in about why writers and writing programs need to be transparent about publishing. Black and published family, let's welcome Dantil to the show. Are ready to go, so we're just gonna jump in. Uh, Dante, first, thank you for joining me on Black and Published today. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. No problem. So, first question When did you know that you were a writer? Like, I know people hate when writers say stuff like this, but like, from a very like, I've always written that's just like, you know, I'd have my little poetry book and I'm writing like little terrible child poems, you know, whatever it is. But like, uh, yeah, so really young. I mean, but so. Okay, so I'll say writing is one thing, like knowing that you want to be a writer to be published is a whole separate thing. So I was writing for such a long time and people would ask me like, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I'd be like, I don't know. But like, you know, I'm sitting here writing. So it took a long time for me to actually think like that was something that I could do. What do you think was the disconnect between what you did anyway naturally and thinking that that could be your career? I think, number one, nobody around me really was thinking of it as that. You know what I mean? Nobody around me was like, oh, you can one day publish a book. And I and I do think that there's something there about the types of people we encourage to do types of things. And I think that, you know, as a as a little black girl, that just wasn't what anybody was encouraging. Like, oh, you can one day, you know, write a book, even though it was like, oh, your writing is really good. There wasn't that connection with the with the next step. So if that makes sense. It makes sense, but then it makes me wonder because you wrote as like, it's not a major in high school, but that was what you did in high school because you went to an arts high school. Mm -hmm. And then again, even going to Florida State, going through their creative writing program, I went through that creative writing program. So I'm just like, I mean, okay. So once I got to like in high school, yeah, I went for writing, but it wasn't again, we were writing, but it wasn't like they were preparing us to be future authors or like, you know, we never really talked about publishing and that kind of thing. And then even in my MFA or not my MFA, my um, undergraduate creative writing at FSU, you know, it was workshops and then like briefly like MFAs and things were mentioned, but still, you know what I mean? Like I was like, oh, I want to do a book, but I still didn't know how to. So it was just like trying to figure out how to put all those pieces together. 
quick question, because I know when I did the undergrad program at FSU, I did the honors thesis. So mm-hmm. I actually ended up writing like this little novella that then became a book like 15 years later. <laughs> did you do that as well and p- trying to craft something and put something together that could be like one complete work as like your first step into doing that? So I didn't. So when I went there, I had like a creative writing emphasis is what it was called. So I took like several like workshops and things, but I didn't have to do a thesis or any kind of thing like that. But I did submit to, I don't know if you remember the Kudzu Review, which was our literary uh, journal there. And so I submitted to that a couple of times and like got included and did like a little reading and whatever, but I never had to do a thesis, not until I got to my MFA. I don't even think I knew to submit to the Kudzu Review. Yeah. So. And and talking about doing your MFA, because you posted this on Instagram about two hours ago. (laughs) I was like, oh, I'm going to ask about it. So you went from going to school, writing all the time, having this focus to taking a break. It was about three years before you set off to go and get your MFA. Yeah, about four. Um, I graduated in 2012 from FSU. You know, my plan was, oh, I'm going to get a job because that's just what they tell you, right? Once you have the degree, you can go get a job. But like an English job doesn't require, like, you know what I mean? You're not actually qualified to do like a whole lot where, you know, like, or, you know, you go to apply to these jobs and they're like, oh, but you need experience. I was like, well, I don't have experience because I was getting a degree. Do you know what I mean? And so like I started serving and bartending and that's what I did up until that time. And I was writing a little bit like on and off during that period. Um, But yeah, eventually in 2015, I was like, okay. I think I want to do my MFA. And so, you know, I researched and did all of that and then got in and went in 2016. And going after the MFA, was that so that you could begin working as a writer or be validated as such? Or is that when you just realize, okay, I think I want to write a book and this is the only way I know how? No. Yeah. So I have been writing, trying to write a novel for like since 2010, you know, I had found that, you know, and so I would like start it, stop it, start it, stop it. And then in around 2015 is when I was like, I think I need more guidance. I think I need more support. Like I didn't have a literary community in Jacksonville. Um, So I was like, I think I need more guidance. And so then obviously I didn't even know about fully funded programs and all that stuff, but the guidance turned into, oh, you know, it's also really helpful time and money like where you're not working like 12 hour doubles and like you can actually sit and focus and have people tell you, you know, and then, yeah, obviously too, I I learned a lot about the publishing industry and like the professionalization of writing during my MFA, which I wouldn't have known that beforehand too. So yeah, it just came with, I need more support. I need guidance. And I was thinking like mentors, people who can help me, but like I got all of that and, and beyond at my MFA. You mentioned in one of our earlier conversations that, you know, being a writer and writing for a living is opaque. And I found the same thing that no one tells you what the steps are to navigate how to go from I like to write, I write stories to I want to publish a book. Do you think that that's something that should be covered early on when people are declaring majors in in, in writing and, and creative writing specifically in poetry that, okay, you know, yes, you have a license to to write, but I think a lot of people end up going into, okay, I got this English degree. Let me go get this teacher certification mm-hmm. and teach this high school literature class and not let me go freelance or submit for journals and reviews or try to go to oh. an MFA program and all of that. 
Yeah, I think so. I understand like maybe why we didn't get or I didn't get like a lot of that in my undergraduate um, creative writing courses, just because I feel like, you know, at that point in time, you don't know who's actually serious about doing it or if someone's like, oh, this is a fun elective for me or, you know what I mean? Lots of people like start writing and then don't actually do it. But I do think that if teachers, especially in the undergraduate like sphere, if teachers are sensing like, oh, okay, this this student has potential, I can see that in their work. Maybe they can have like one on one conversations about, okay, well, this is what it looks like, right? Because no one has any idea what making a life off of your words actually looks like, and it looks like a lot of hustle. Honestly, it looks like a lot of hustle, a lot of stringing stuff together. Um, and then I think especially in MFA programs, because I realized talking to some of my friends who went to different programs than me that some of some programs don't like to talk about the publishing side of it at all, even in the MFA, which is really wild to me because I'm like, on the one hand, I understand that they might think, oh, we don't want the students to get caught up in thinking about publishing while they're still trying to do the work. But at the same time, like, I think the benefits outweigh the risks in preparing someone for what this could look like. What does getting an agent look like? What does the publishing process look like? What does, you know, all of this stuff mean? Fellowships, how to apply for fellowships and grants and you know, that kind of stuff. So I, I think that, yeah, that should definitely be included because like, you don't know, no one prepares you for it. That is so crazy to me. Cause like, I didn't go the MFA route. I did a double major. So English communications. And then I got the job in journalism and wrote on the side. That was, yeah. that was my side baby. So in hearing you talk about that, even in the MFA program, they don't talk about the publishing side when that is, I feel like the, the culture grounds mm-hmm. where publishing and writers are honed and created and then are funneled into that pipeline to find an agent, get an editor, sell the, sell the book. Like that's what that exists for. And I feel like that's why a lot of people go after the MFA just so just for that advantage and opportunity to hear that it's not discussed baffles me. Well, yeah. And I mean, like I said, I don't know those spaces where it's not, but I do know that some don't. And I think too, that some people think of the MFA as only like getting you ready to be teaching um, creative writing at the collegiate level. But the thing about that too, is there needs to be honesty and transparency about that as well. Because as far as tenure track positions, you know, there's not like they're just all lying around, right? You know what I mean? There's a lot of adjuncting that happens, which is a very different thing. It's a, you know, it's a lot more work intensive. Um, process. So, you know, just more transparency in general about what it takes to do a life and language. Because I feel like our world prepares us to work for other people, but not so much to like work for ourselves. So you have to like, you know, have guided guidance for that kind of stuff. So in thinking about that in terms of your own journey, you got to your undergraduate degree and then went to bartending, then got, got into the MFA program. Through your MFA program, were you very focused on I'm here because I want to publish a book and that's what I'm going to do once I'm done. Yeah. So for me, I had a couple of goals that, you know, no, no program can guarantee any of this, right? Everything in this industry is kind of like a lottery system almost anyways. You know what I mean? It's, it's luck, talent and timing and action, right? So I, my goal was I wanted to finish the draft of my novel. I wanted to, if I could get an agent um, and I wanted to, you know, meet people in the writing world and build a community. And I was able to do all of that. I I finished a draft of my novel, which I have. So I have a full first draft of that, the one that I went there in the first place to go do. Um, I was able to get an agent that I met through my MFA. 
And then, you know, I have a community of people that I've known from that time and beyond that, you know, are still in my life. And, you know, we exchange work and, you know, do the writing thing together. So. So you have a draft of a novel, but the book is a collection of short stories. Right. Make it make sense. (laughs) So it's two separate books. Okay. So what was it that made you go with the short story collection first? So I, in the MFA, I had no intentions or no, no want to workshop my novel. Just, it's hard to, I think, um, you know, obviously there are workshops where people do workshop excerpts of their novel, but I think it's hard for anybody to workshop just a piece of something and be able to, you know, give you good feedback on it. So I didn't want to do that. So I was workshopping stories from my actual workshops. And I did my novel as my thesis so I could still get feedback on it. But from my mentor who would read the whole thing, you know what I mean? And it would just be like her expert opinion versus putting it in the workshop. So I, that's why I have both. And so when I graduated, I had maybe seven, maybe six or seven stories. And I had the first draft of the novel. I try to work on the novel. Novels take a really long time. They take a lot of, you know, they can't be held in a, like in your mind the way short story can. So eventually I got to a point where I was like, well, I've now got like, nine of these stories, most of them are published. Like, does it make sense? This is a conversation I have with my agent. Does it make sense for us to do the stories first? And a lot of people have feelings about that because you know, the, the, the line is like, oh, short stories don't sell. They're not marketable. We want the novel first. So then we can do the stories. And I, I thankfully have an agent who was like, no, I believe in the stories for the art that they are without them being a vehicle for the novel. And we will make sure to get it into the hands of people who also feel that way. And so I was really supported and encouraged by my agent to be like, okay, yeah, if the stories make sense for you right now, let's do the stories. Because at that point in time, like to be real, like people are like, oh, you publish the work when you need to. And it's like, yeah, I would have loved to done a novel first, but also I need a paycheck. I need to sell this book so I can like show something for all the sacrifice that we did to do this MFA. And so like, that's what happened. Well, so let's talk about the money piece of that. Cause you said that you didn't know about, you know, fully funded MFA programs. So then that's either paying out of pocket grants and loans Mm -hmm. and then, you know, finally getting to the point where you sold the manuscript of the short stories to have a paycheck. How difficult was that time period financially? So I, I actually did do a fully funded program. So I didn't know about them when I started, but I, you know, researched online. I found some online writing communities that talked about it. And so I, I, by the time I only applied to fully funded programs, because I was already in, I'm already in debt for undergraduate. I'm not getting ready to take on more debt for something that like, literally there's no guarantees that you'll ever publish a book. You know what I mean? So I, I did do a fully funded program. And then I was really fortunate that I had applied to a grant um, from the Elizabeth George Foundation. And I had asked them for $30,000 for a year of support. And I got that. So I had that already lined up when I left. So I had this $30,000. So I was like, okay, I have one year to finish one of these books. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, let's go and let's sell it. So, um, So for me, I was supported in the fact that I had those things. And also I have a partner who has stable income. So, you know what I mean? So we were able to like make it work out that way. But, you know, it was like a lot of anxiety because I was like, you know, we went through all these sacrifices. I'm not sure if they will ever pay off, but like, thankfully we were able to sell the book, the short stories. And now that when I was like, look, I just want to get like this much money. If we could do that. And then that'll give me enough time to do the next book. And then we will go from there. So it's kind of like playing leapfrog. You're just like, hopping from one stone to the next, except you can't see the stones. So it's kind of like, you just have to trust that something's going to fall into place. It's almost like 
you're jumping and trying not to drown, which I found as a theme in the stories of the, of this of this feeling of you know just trying to, to to stay above water. And so in in looking at the collection and selling it, revising it, and going through that whole publishing process, I noticed throughout that there was a, a strong theme of motherhood and a strong theme of girlhood and it was almost cyclical in how the stories were going so was that intentional as you were writing the stories and putting them together yeah that's exactly the word cyclical is the word that i use to describe this all of the time i that's i i like when i craft a story i like for there to be like a return and then so when i was thinking about the stories overall like the arcs obviously they stand on their own they're individual stories but they still are in conversation with each other. And now, so I'm thinking about the arc of the book. So I think of the whole entire book as kind of mirrors and echoes. A lot of the times people don't think of short stories as linked unless the characters are the same. But I do think of these stories as linked because there are, there are more things that constitute a link other than character, right? There's voice, there's place, there's language. And I'm doing a little bit of all of that in this book. Like there's certain words besides like milk, blood, heat that repeat. And each time they repeat, they pick up resonance. You know what I mean? And so by the time you get to the end, all of that should be reverberating back throughout the story. Um, but yeah, so I, I do think that was intentional. And I do think of it like that. Yeah, even in the uh, the cyclical nature of the relationships, I also saw it in the point of views that I kept having to go back to earlier stories. Once I got further along, I was like, wait, was that is that the same bartender? Is that the same... Mother, it was like, wait, and it was like, no, these are these are separate, but they but they they all go together. Mm-hmm. I also noticed, and you've talked about this a lot, milk, blood, heat. Well, the first story we get, we get milk and blood. <laughs> and then that kind of continues. And I was like, so where does where where exactly was the heat coming from? Is the heat because it's in Florida? Um, and, and, and the temperament and the climate, because, you know, you have the references to Jacksonville, you have the references to uh, Tallahassee. I especially love the reference to Floyd's. Ah, <laughs> I love it. I was always hoping. I'm like, I hope somebody from Tallahassee sees it. Well, so that you said Floyd's, I was like, mm, I've been to many a phone party there mm-hmm. that I probably would not have ever done mm-hmm. had I known better. <laughs> and so I was like, so is the, is the heat and then even when the story where the um, the brother and the sister and the brother's girlfriend go to Arizona somewhere, it, it's there. And so that just ratchet, ratchets up the tension that's already in the story. Go ahead and explain because that wasn't a question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, he it, it's it's multiple things. Right. So number one, heat, yes, of Florida, but not just of Florida, because some of these stories are also exploring the absence of heat. Like if you think about the story snow. Right. And how like that is like the absence of the thing that we think of Florida as so it's hot. But it's also heat of living bodies. Right. So anything living has heat or needs it to live. And it's heat like desire, heat like want, you know, those types of things. So for me, when I was choosing the title of this book, I it didn't always, I didn't always know it would be this title, but I had a friend who was like, you know, what about milk, blood, heat? And because, you know, that kind of flows through every single other story, because what you're actually talking about with milk, blood, and heat is the human connection of all of these elements. These are very elemental, visceral connection, connection words. And that's what I'm mm. doing. I'm, I'm exploring basically the fullness of what it means to be human, not just the things that we're told is appropriate to feel or to be or to think, but all of it. Do you know what I mean? But in the fullness of, of being human, it's very specific to women. 
it's very specific. At least I found it to be very specific for a lot of the stories to mothers and daughters and how they relate to one another. Yeah. And, and those things. Uh, let me go. Page 15. <laughs> I told you I have notes. Uh, and the line, what if she's seen me all along? It made me think that, you know, we raise our daughters so that so well, we forget to let them know that we've been them and, mm. and, and that there's a missing link in the relationship and the, and the raising and, and that you're so focused on raising, you forget to empathize or remember that, you know, you were a child once too. Yes. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was one of my intentionalities for any of the younger perspectives in the book. I do think that it's very easy for adults to forget what it was to be children and also to forget that children are humans. They are people. They are, you know what I mean? Like they are experiencing the world for the first time. They're the most vulnerable at that age, relying on everyone around them for protection. And oftentimes that protection is not perfect, is not healthy in some regards. It's not, you know what I mean? Like, so there's all of these things that um, people just forget that that children um, are people experiencing the world. And I wanted to, you know, honor that. But then even as adults forget that children are people too, is it not the same that children forget that their parents are people or they don't even know to think that because they don't even know. Because it's like, where where is it? Page 197, here I go. (laughs) You have the line, you know, it was her way of as her way of asking for my acceptance, she was she was to herself to apologize for her nature. And and saying that is like, should parents feel sorry for being themselves if being themselves harms their children and harms is in quotes there? Yeah, so that that also reminds me of the other a part in the book. It's in the story, The Hearts of Our Enemies. And Margot is watching her mom from afar. And being like, oh, I just had a realization that my mom is not just my mom. She's a whole person in and of herself. And so I think just in general, I mean, the whole message, whether it's sisters, brothers, fathers, daughters, you know, mothers, daughters, friends, whatever it is, it's just realizing that the people around you have their own lives. And then like, what happens if we accept people for who and how they are? And then allow us to like, you know what I mean? be fully who and how we are ourselves. So it's kind of just that intentionality with acceptance of like what something is, not what we expect it to be or what we want it to be. How did your own life and relationships influence the writing then of, of these stories? Because it, because it because it's so intentional and it's so spot, it's spot on and specific that it comes from somewhere. I mean, yeah, I mean, all of the stories come from me. So like, they're all influenced by things that I've heard, things that I think, things that, you know, I've experienced to a certain degree. But with, for me, for fiction, if anything even, you know, comes from a seed of truth, it's still that a jumping off point to get to something deeper, some some other question that I'm exploring. But, you know, it just came from, I'm somebody who's a very observant person, just like most writers are. That's like the thing that you do. You're nosy. You're curious. You're like, why is this? Why is this? I'm noticing things. And so it's just going from living a life up until this point where I am now and just like looking around at all of the relationships and people and things around me and being like, oh, okay, I'm curious about this. And so like, that's just basically where it comes from in terms of my own life. You also have a lot of dichotomies or binaries. And just some of the way the sentences are structured, like there's a blaming silence 
or you talk about, you know, crying happy and laughing sad. In describing emotions and circumstances in a way that draws out both the the joy and the pain of it, because it, even I think on page 173, you say something about love and hate being able to reside together. Mm. Do you often feel that you're trying to give your characters the spectrum of the emotions of the human experience that often black and brown characters are not given in any capacity in various mediums? I mean, I definitely wanted to portray all of the characters as 100% people, right? Not just sketches of themselves. I think that because of we live in white supremacy and in patriarchy um, and capitalism, there's this Somebody said to me actually the other day, they're like, oh, you know, this book is mostly, you know, black and brown girls. And I, you know, that can seem narrow at first. And I was like, but narrow to who? Do you know what I mean? Like, because that that's that's a systemic um, kind of thought about like these things are narrow and, and these things are not. Um, and so for me, I'm not trying to teach anybody anything with this book. Like, it's not like, look, Black people are humans because that's a motherfucking given. Ooh, I don't even know if we can say that. Sorry. <laughs> you said it. It's done. So there we are. You said it. You here we are. That's a given. Um, so I'm not trying to teach anybody anything, but like if you come to this text and that's what you get out of it, good. I'm glad for you. I'm you know, that's good. But like that's not my intention. Like these are people. That's it. Now roll on to the next thing. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, 100 percent All of the fullness of what it like what we can feel and what it means and how we feel about what we feel. Yeah, I, I get that the text is not like a teaching anti-racism text. Right. But I think in the existence of the text, yes, those who are not Black and are not minorities will come to it with, huh, oh, they do that too. Yes, okay, and, and, that's, total, and that's what I'm like, it's fine. You know, you reminded me when you just said that about it's not like, it wasn't meant to be an anti-racism text, but like, um, so Damon Young is a writer who said on Instagram in the last year, you know, was like, uh, I think that any black text, any, any book written by a black person is technically an anti-racism text because it's just exploring some aspect of, it came from them. So it's exploring some aspect that came from blackness because blackness is not a monolith, which is so wild that we're still having to say that so often. So like when people are like, oh, this is, I'm like, I'm not depicting any one black experience because nobody can do that. That's not what this is. This is just these characters who are black doing this thing, but that's not, oh, that's that's blackness with a capital B. It's like, this is a subset of <laughs> an experience of these characters, these people, which is like wild to have to like get that through. It's crazy to have to explain that, but because it's not specifically about these characters and their intersection with race, even when there are uh, when there are characters who are non-black, it's not about the race of it all. The race is not the tension. The tension is the the circumstances uh, between them. Yes, and that was something that was really important to me too. Like, obviously, there was no. I wanted to acknowledge the reality of the world we live in, right? But it, I didn't want it to be always at the forefront of these characters' minds, like you say, as the tension, because like sometimes people are just going through the same shit everybody else is, which is you know, is this the right marriage for me? I need a new job. How am I going to pay my bills? You know what I mean? Like that stuff, but it, it slips in. Right. So there's a couple of stories where like, like microaggressions, which, you know, are a subset of the larger problem. You go in and someone doesn't greet you at the door or you go in or someone gives you a, a certain kind of look, that stuff comes in, but it's not the main focus. It's just like, okay, the reality of it is whoop, this is all around. 
And now I'm back into this is my issue that I'm dealing with. So then what do you make of it when reviewers or anyone comes to it and expects it to be more upfront, capital B, Black, in your face with the race aspect of it? And it's not because I had a reviewer say that to me. It's like, oh, I wish you would have talked more about race. I'm like, it's not about race. It's about family. (laughs) It's like, I mean, the race is there. I mean, that piece is always there, but we don't spend our entire lives trying to fight racism. We're just trying to live. Yeah. Literally. Yeah, exactly. Um, I would say, you know, number one, we know we can't control what other people bring to a book, what, what other people are going to take from it based on where they are from in their life. Cause that, that depends on so much about how people are going to be receptive to whatever it is you wrote, where they are in their, in their life and their thinking. But I would say to like people who feel like, oh, this isn't exactly what I was looking for. I wanted this, this, and this. I'd be like, well, go find it. There are so many books written by so many people there. You know, I'm sure you're going to find it, but this is what I'm doing in this book. I didn't mean that as rude as like it sounded, but like, it's a matter of fact, then go find it. It's okay. I need a moment to collect myself because I was like, oh, well, go find it then. Go find it. That's okay. This book doesn't have to be for everybody at this particular time. You know what I mean? Some books are things like, you know, I've picked up books before where, you know, I'm like, oh, not for me right now. But, I've, you know, I've gone back later and been like, oh, okay, now I can see. Now I'm in a space with that. And um, I think it's okay for people not to like what other people wrote. There, like, again, there's so many writers, so many artists, so many things that you can go and find and like find what speaks to you. That's totally OK if that's not my book for you. How freeing is that? And when did you get to that realization that it's not going to be for everybody and that's OK and that doesn't make you any less successful? Yeah, um, I will say that it takes a while, especially in, you know, this what we do, anything art based is going to be so subjective. You know what I mean? Like that's just off the rip. No one, like no two people are going to look at it and get the same exact things out of it. Even if, you know, they both liked it or both didn't like it or whatever it is. So just realizing that it's super subjective is super like based on personality and life experience and, and taste, right? Like all of that stuff. Um, I think for me, it came pretty much like once I was in final edits, you know, and I was like, having that anxiety about, oh my God, it's going to go in public. Like I've been wanting people to read my book my whole life and now people are about to read it. And I'm like, oh no, you know, kind of like that. Like there's a certain level of visibility that's a little bit nerve wracking, but um, I read it like once it was like pretty finished and it was getting ready to go into, you know, be made into the physical book. And I was like, damn, I I, I think I, I'm like pretty close. This is pretty close to what I wanted for the book. So I am happy about it. And because I'm my primary audience, Like, I'm like, okay, then I'm happy about it. Then I did the best that I could do. And if even one person outside of me connects with it, that's a cherry. Good. Good. All right. So then we're going to get into this book. I'm going to tee you up and read the description. And then I'm going to let you read your excerpt. And then we're going to go back to it. Cool. All right. (laughs) Set among the cities and suburbs of Florida, each story in milk blood heat delves into the ordinary worlds of young girls, women, and men who find themselves confronted by extraordinary moments of violent personal reckoning. These intimate portraits of people and relationships scour and soothe and blast the light on the nature of family, faith, forgiveness, consumption, and what we may or may not owe one another. 
a 13-year-old meditates on her sadness and the difference between herself and her white best friend when an unexpected tragedy occurs. A woman recovering from a miscarriage finds herself unable to let go of her daughter, whose body parts she sees throughout her daily life. A teenager resists her family's church and is accused of courting the devil. Servers at a supper club cater to the insatiable cravings of their wealthy clientele, and two estranged siblings take a road trip with their father's ashes and are forced to face the troubling reality of how he continues to shape them. Wise and subversive, spiritual and seductive, Milk Blood Heat forms an auroboros of stories that bewitch with their truth, announcing the arrival of a bright new literary star. Don't tell us all you, boo. All right. So I'm going to read a short excerpt from the story Necessary Bodies. All you need to know for the part that I'm going to read is that um, the main character has recently found out she's pregnant. She's trying to figure out like what to do about it. She's also trying to research an article that she's writing about. Um, they've colored the retention pond in front of her home. And so now she's meeting up with her best friend, Pia, at the uh, Museum of Science and History. Mosh, for all of y'all Jacksonvillians, you know what I'm talking about. All right. They bought tickets at the Museum of Science and History, paid a little extra for a four o'clock interactive showing at the planetarium on celestial bodies featuring black holes. It was a quiet time to be there, an adult time, since most kids were sitting at kitchen tables with English workbooks and pre-dinner snacks. Other than a handful of others, some old folks consulting pamphlets and a group of teens with a perpetual look of indifference stretched between them, they practically had the place to themselves. All those whirling lights, hidden compartments, displays of ancient bones, all of the discovery. This girl at work said the best thing about being pregnant was that her boyfriend didn't want to fuck her because he was scared of hurting the baby. So she got to grow a bush fully out. She hadn't seen herself like that, like ever, and said after the itching phase, she really enjoyed it. The blonde woman at the counter who had not welcomed them when they entered as she'd done for the previous guests threw them a scandalized look, but Pia only waved. Do you believe that? Billy asked. What, that she liked it? That he was scared of hurting the baby? Not for a second. Billy wondered if they kept it, if Liam would still want to. He told her all the time that he would want to make love to her even when she was 80, but she thought that was an easy thing to say when old age never felt like it would happen. Not to them, not directly, not yet. Billy still used celebrities' crow's feet as a measurement of how much physical time had passed. She was just starting to be able to see age in herself. Maybe the transformations of time and pregnancy on the body were related. If she asked him about sex, Liam would say, of course. But once he saw that alien belly, the skin pulled shiny with some other creature's being, he might change his mind. They walked through the exhibits and Billy was relieved to find them safely distracting. Aquatic life, regional birds of prey and the required dinosaurs, a hundred year history of Jacksonville starting in the 1800s. Calford, the Great Fire of 1901, though a noticeable skimming of the city's part in aiding the Confederacy. There was nothing to remind or sway her, no genome projects or working models of the human heart, but Pia must have been waiting for a chance to extrapolate. They just ducked inside an oversized circuit board, the wires and glow bouncing off the walls when she said, okay, so let's chart this thing out. Each item she ticked off on her fingers like elementary math. Being Oh, Billy and Liam had been married five years. They loved each other. They were in their late 20s. They weren't broke. They liked other people's kids and both their families got along. It looks good on paper, right? How do you feel? What are you thinking? She was really asking, not being patronizing or waiting to inject her own opinion. 
and this made Pia all the lovelier, her dark eyes collecting the generated light, and Billy tiny there, suspended upside down. She was thinking a million things, some of which had plagued her even before she found out. What if the state floods, we reelect that terrible man, if I'm bad at it, I do it, then decide I don't want to do it, if I don't do it and miss it. What if someone shoots me in the grocery store, the movie theater, my own home? What about the revisionist histories taught in schools? What if I'm not self-sacrificing enough? If I'm too self-sacrificing, if me and Liam get divorced, shit happens. What if the kid hates me? If I'm cruel, if I really, really love it and lose it, if none of this can be sustained, not our love or our planet. What if in the end, we just die the ocean and wish it well? For better or worse, she didn't know if it was responsible to bring new life into this world, but she couldn't spend all her time agonizing. She had to keep moving, keep breathing, or else she'd cease to exist. So she gave Pia the simplest of answers, what it could all boil down to. Honestly, what will this baby do to me? The planetarium seats reclined all the way back so that each occupant had an expansive view of the ceiling. And at 4 p.m. exactly, the lamps went out and the room transformed into the nebulous black of the universe, their own solar system and thousands upon thousands of stars blinking awake, many for which amazingly, overwhelmingly, there were still not names. In that dark and intermittent light, Billy was a seed a blip of yearning in the deep pocket of the galaxy, small in the most comforting of ways. The ubiquitous male voiceover gave a brief tour of each of the eight planets, poor Pluto, the asteroid belt, before moving beyond the closest black hole, 3,000 light years away from the Earth. They learned specific terms, space-time, event horizon, ideal black bodies. That last made both women independently chuckle, all used to interpret a mass so large that even light could not escape it. Once an object dropped inside, it was essentially lost to any external observation. However, it seemed to Billy that in this instance, lost to observation was not mutually exclusive with gone. She leaned over and whispered into Pia's ear, do you think a black hole is a portal? And Pia, after only a moment, replied, life's a circle, you know. You can't go anywhere someone else wasn't first. So in hearing you read that, I just underlined like two more lines that I hadn't before. So the line, honestly, what will this baby do to me? I feel like that's a question women ask, whether they're pregnant, thinking about becoming pregnant, Mm -hmm. just curious about it. And I want to know how, because of all the relationships of mothers and daughters and, you know, he's talking about miscarriage and pregnancy and all of that. How does that thought replay in your own mind when it comes to then extracting it out and giving it to these characters? Yeah, I think. So the question that I thought I was writing towards, or I, am, I was writing towards, but intentionally was this question of morality, conditionality, of, you know, like someone has to define the words good, bad, right, and wrong, even though we think of them as absolute terms, they're not, they're subjective. And I was kind of writing towards who gets to define, who has the power to define these words in any given situation. So that was the thing I was consciously writing towards. But then like after I had the whole collection, I realized that the other question that I was writing towards is, should we have children in a world like this? And so Mm -hmm. I think that that was something that was just on my mind, because obviously, like, as soon as you get married, like people are like, oh, when are you having the baby? When's the baby coming? When's the baby happening? And, you know, my husband and I actually next Monday will have been married eight years and we are not we're not parents. And so, you know less people ask now, but like in the first like five years of our marriage, it was like, win, 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 win. And I was just like, well, is that the next logical step? Like, I wish 
there was like more space for women to think, is that the next step for me? And I think Mm -hmm. that if people were allowed to have that question, there would be less instances of, um, you know, toxic child parent relationships. If people like go into that next step with intention and willingness and not just like, oh, this is the next step or this is what I wanted to do or you know, maybe not even the education to know like how to prevent themselves from being pregnant if, you know, that's not something that they're ready for. Um, yeah, it's just, that's, those are the questions that I had in my mind. And so like what, what I didn't know that was coming out in these stories too. One, congratulations on your anniversary. My anniversary is actually the 12th and we will have been married nine years, (laughs) but we have a six-year-old and one on the way. So, oh, congratulations. Thank you. But like hearing you read that line, it's a a line I think I thought often during this pregnancy, I I thought often after I had my son, like, what does this do to what I want Mm -hmm. as a person, as a, not just a mother, not just a wife, but as a person myself. And so in hearing that in the stories or even in the earlier story where she can't get over the miscarriage, you've seen the body parts, she doesn't want to go pick up the little girl from school, even though the little girl misses her, it's just like, it can be all consuming in some aspects, but it can also be, you can, you can also ha- have that enormous amount of guilt mm-hmm. for still being independent. So in that line that we were talked about earlier about, you know, she was to herself to apologize. It's like, how can you apologize for being yourself? Um, even if you are a parent. Yeah. Yeah, they hit different. Yeah. <laughs> um, how was your relationship to Jacksonville and the South in general, you know, influenced who you are, how the book come, came to shape, and now and now your outlook on life? Yeah, I so I'm someone who has wanted or been trying to leave Jacksonville I feel like for so long in my life just because you know it's the place I'm from so you know it's a great city but also it's a complicated city it's it's got a history that not many people allude to in terms of its part in white supremacy and aiding that like that's there's a line even that I read that was like you know like this was actually like a city that was like helping the so the Confederate soldiers out and that that gets glossed over so much in terms of when we talk about this city And so for me, it's, you know, it shaped me. It's like, it's like, you know, a mom child relationship, right? This is the place that I come from. I mean, I'm, I'm shaped by this place, but I also have complicated feelings about it, but I also do. One of my intentions was, um, I wanted to portray Jacksonville and Florida in a way that was non-stereotypical in a way that went against like how you hear about our state in the news all the time and how you, Florida man, this, that, you know, it's not, it's not thought of as a particularly literary state or a smart state. I think that has a lot to do with elitism, but also, um, you know, the South, a lot of black people live in the South. So you can't separate like the way people feel about the South versus that fact too. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's all over and through the story. So I wanted to honor this place that I'm from, but I also wanted to examine it honestly, because I think Sometimes people think of, oh, you love something. So you kind of like only talk about it in a positive, a positive manner. But I think real love is being able to look at and examine something honestly for what it is, because how can you have growth or change or any kind of thing if you're not willing to look at the situation as it is, which I think that applies to our country as a whole. But um, that's what I wanted to do for Florida. It's like the James Baldwin quote, 
because I love America or because I'm from America, I'm, it is the reason why I must critique her constantly. Yeah, 100%. But you announced recently that you're now moving, finally getting out of the state for good and going back to where you did your MFA to begin teaching. Mm-hmm. How do you think this transition from South to North will affect you in how you will guide other students through the very same process you've gone through yourself. Yeah, so that aspect of it, the guiding other students, that's what I'm super excited about. I'm I'm the person who I, I love to share resources with other people. Like it's like, oh, I want to apply for the Elizabeth Jordan. I'm like, hey, let me give you my budget, my proposal so you can see how that's done. Um, let me talk about the money with you because I think it's a privilege not to talk about money and most of us don't have that privilege. And so for me, I'm like, people are like, oh, you don't have to talk about the money. I was like, no, ask me about the money because that's how we make things work. So I'm, I'm super looking forward to basically return some of the care and guidance and like just love that I got when I was in my program to the students who will pass through my class. I think, you know, because I, I did that. I moved there for two years for my graduate program. And I think leaving Jacksonville and a more finite because I've left several times. I tried to live in Seattle. That was really expensive. So I came back home. You know what I mean? I've left a couple of times. But like, this is a different kind of a move. But when I left to go to graduate school, especially because the Midwest and the South are very different places, um, you know, weather wise, uh, people wise, just all of the ways. And so it gave me a new distance and perspective on Jacksonville. And so I'll, I'll be interested to see what metabolizes in this next move, considering I'll be living there for, you know, the foreseeable future. So I don't know yet, but I'm looking forward to like what comes up. Yes, because I did it. I did it opposite. I'm from Chicago, and then I came south and have seen to have never left. My parents were the opposite. They were from Louisiana, and they went north. So I, I see this generational mm-hmm. cyclical shift, I guess, in a way where everybody's trying to go to the other place to see what life can be, be it financial, economic, racial tension, whatever. Yeah. Um. So I want to go into a quick speed round and then we'll wrap up in a little bit. So what is your favorite book? Ooh, that's tough. It would be between White Oleander by Janet Fitch and The Color Purple by Alice Walker. Who is your favorite author? I don't know if I have a favorite author, but right now I'm really into Raven Leilani's work. What is your favorite band or who or what is your favorite band? Band? Yeah. Or artist. For artists. Oh my God. Oh, music is so hard. Uh, oh my God. Everything is blank. Everything is blank right now. Okay. Aaliyah, back and forth. I've been listening to that a lot before I do events. I'm just gonna say Aaliyah. I'm gonna put that in there. Rest in peace, baby girl. Yeah. What is your favorite place in Florida? I love to go to the Cummer Museum. I love the garden section of the Cummer Museum of Arts. If you haven't gone, it's on Riverside. They do some free day, museum days. It's amazing. What have you learned about yourself in writing this book? That I can do it, number one. Because even when you're writing a book, you never know if you can finish it or if it's going to you know, come out the way that you hoped. And so I can do it. That means if I did it once, I can do it again. How do you define success? For me, uh, I define it as being able to connect with other people through my words, like being able to transfer some of the feeling that I intended to other people 
off of a two-dimensional medium. And I think that this book has done that for like, you know, some people. So I feel like that's successful. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Oh man, there's so many places in the world that I want to go. Um, Seattle is very white, but I really like, there's something about Seattle that I really like. So like if we could maybe Seattle in like 10 years of things, like, I don't know. Seattle is a nice city. <laughs> I'll just say that. It just needs to be a little bit darker. Yeah, you know, it's just like you know, a little bit. Uh, and what soothes you or brings you peace? Oh my God. Why don't I know answers to things? Um, baths. Like being able to take a nice bath and put all the lavender and the bath salt, just a nice bath and time to just like reflect and sit in a hot body of water. Like that's, yeah. Baths are everything. Yeah, that was not speedy. I am so sorry. (laughs) I was like, oh no. This round, I call it a speed round because I expect it to be speedy, but it has not been speedy for just about any of the people who've been on the show. It's so hard. Like as soon as you're asking questions, like, you can ask me a question about the book. I'm like, da, da, da. these other questions, like my mind's like white. I'm like, I don't, rem- I don't know anything. I've never known a thing in my life. <laughs> you mentioned earlier um, that trying to make a living off of language is not talked about enough, but that's something that you are doing completely. What would you tell the next generation of writers about how to make a living off of language without always having the fail safe of teaching in academia or becoming a journalist or yeah. teaching high school literature, which seem to be the things that people with English degrees do until they figure out how to do the book. If yeah. they ever do the book. <clears throat> so I'll say what I, what I told my students recently, which was that I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. It's hard. It requires, and, and oftentimes, a nomadic lifestyle. It, it puts a lot of stress on not just you, but also if you have a, a partner that you're with or if you have children, it becomes that much more difficult um, to, to kind of do that hustle because a lot of things that you will get an opportunity to do do require you to relocate. Maybe some of that will change with, you know, what has happened in COVID and we have more virtual opportunities and remote working. But like the reality of it is, it's going to require a nomadic lifestyle. So number one, just like accepting like what that might mean. And so, you know, like any kind of job that you can do that will allow you to pay your bills and then also have a little bit of time on the side to do the writing thing, whatever time that you can get in with writing, that's enough time. You just have to like be consistent with like, you know, doing that work. And the, and the other thing that I will say that is, is just as important is to um, not count yourself out for opportunities. You will have an entire world who will do that for you. So don't self eliminate yourself from the possibilities of what you could do. So if you're even like, even just barely eligible for something, apply for it. You know what I mean? Like some things aren't free to apply for. So that's a real thing consideration. There are application fees, but like, if you have the money to do that, or if it's a free opportunity, don't say, well, I don't know if it's me. I won't do it. Like apply for it. Because even if you don't get that opportunity, the application process of it, will be growth towards your next application, their next thing that you're going to apply for and maybe get. So nothing is wasted. Don't count yourself out. Let them do it. You don't need to do it first. And my final question for today, in making this life of language, and hopefully we're going to have this novel come out next so that we can read that. (laughs) (laughs) 
When you are no longer here and among the ancestral realm, what would you like someone to write about the the language you left behind? I would like for them to say that they felt it. Do you Mm. know what I mean? Because for me, yes, obviously we engage with literature or literary art um, intellectually, but I also think that it's important to engage with it emotionally. So for me, a part of my intentionality was I want this, these stories to be felt in the physical body. And so if someone said, oh, I felt something when I read this, then I'm like, great. That's exactly what I, what I wanted. Um, so yeah. Well, definitely felt it. Then I felt like I need to buy another book because this one has all my notes and scribbles in it. <laughs> and underlines and thoughts. <laughs> wait, wait, you're in Jacksonville. Yes. I can get you a UK copy. I'll just send you a UK copy. Or we can meet yes. up and because you can and then you can keep that one scribble free and you can have your US one with your notes. Oh yes, because I love the UK cover. It's okay, Leo, email me. Let's let's arrange a meetup and exchange. Let me stop this recording and then we go talk. <laughs> Interview done. <laughs> Thanks Thank so much for too. having me. For sure. Big thank you to Dantia Moniz for being here on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out her debut short story collection, Milk Blood Heat, out right now from Grove Atlantic. It was actually a recommendation by um, our fifth guest of the season, Naima Coster. So you know it's going to be good. And if you're not following Dantia, follow her on the socials. She's at DZBotPress, D-E-E-Z-Y-B-O-T-P-R-E-S-S on Instagram, DZBotPress, and Dantil W. Moniz on Twitter. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating, a review, a comment. Let us know who you want to hear on the show next. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter. That's at BLK and Published. And if you want to keep up with me, head to my website, newrights.com, N-E-W-W-R-I-T-E-S dot com. Or you can follow me on the socials. I'm at Nikisha underscore Elise on Twitter and Instagram. That's our show for the week. I'll holler at y'all next time. Peace.